You're listening to an Airwave Media Podcast. The longest field goal ever attempted is 76 yards. The longest field goal ever missed? Also 76 yards. Why bring this up? Because knowing your limits matters, both when you're kicking a field goal and when you gamble. Betting more than you're comfortable with is like trying a 70-yard field goal. It probably won't go well. So set a limit when you gamble and stick to it. Want more helpful tips like this? Go to KeepItFunOhio.com for games, quizzes, and lots of ways to keep your gambling from getting out of hand. Hello, and thank you for joining the American Revolution. Today, Episode 62, The Three-Headed Cerberus in Boston. When General Gage sent his reports about the battles of Lexington and Concord to London, he knew that it would be months before he could get any response. His message needed weeks to cross the Atlantic. Officials would then have to decide on a military or political response, then send the necessary resources back across the Atlantic. It would be late summer before any response from England could affect events on the ground in Massachusetts. Fortunately for Gage, though, he would not have to wait nearly so long. The North Ministry had second thoughts about its decision in late 1774 when it told Gage to get the job done with the men he had. Other reports over the fall and winter of 74-75 made clear that trouble was brewing. While not sending the 20,000 men that Gage had requested, the Ministry did decide to send a large force of soldiers and Marines to supplement the regular force already in Boston. Gage's force had dropped from about 5,000 men to less than 4,000 over the winter. Only a small number of those losses came from battle. Trapped in Boston with insufficient access to fresh food in unsanitary conditions, regulars began to die at a pretty good clip from outbreaks of disease. Some also deserted. After Lexington, Gage immediately scrambled for reinforcements from Halifax and New York. That helped a little, but he needed more. Fortunately for Gage, reinforcements had already set sail from Britain well before the Battle of Lexington. They would arrive in late May before word of Lexington even reached London. Combined, General Gage's army grew back to over 5,500 men and would continue to receive reinforcements bringing him up to about 8,000 over the summer. The incoming regulars, combined with the exodus of civilians from Boston, meant that the city had more soldiers than civilians in it by June 1775. With the new regulars from England came three new major generals to assist Gage with his command. They sailed aboard the HMS Cerberus, the name of the mythological three-headed dog that guards the gates of hell. The irony of three new British generals arriving on a ship of that name was not lost on either side. Generals Howe, Clinton, and Burgoyne left London in April 1775, tasked with putting down the rebellion in New England. Since all three generals will go on to play major roles in the war, it seems appropriate to introduce each of them now. Major General William Howe was the most senior general deploying to Boston. He was the third son of the Viscount Howe, and his mother was the niece of King George I. 
so he came from the highest classes of British aristocracy. You may recall that we discussed his brother George, who had inherited his father's title and was the young brigadier general who died in the failed attempt to take Fort Carillon during the French and Indian War. Brother George died in the arms of his aide, Israel Putnam, now a general in the provincial army. Howe's bravery and exploits had prompted the colonists to pay for a monument for him at Westminster Abbey. The monument also meant a great deal to William, who held the colonists in the highest regard. William's next older brother, Richard, inherited the family title from their childless brother George and served as an admiral in the Royal Navy. Now, Richard will join his brother in 1776 in their attempt to squash the American Rebellion, but that's getting ahead of the story. Today, we're focused on William. So, William purchased his first officer's commission as a cornet in 1747. He fought in the War of Austrian Succession and began to rise through the ranks. He soon became friends with General Wolfe and served under him in America during the French and Indian War. Lieutenant Colonel Howe commanded a regiment at the Siege of Louisburg in 1758. He played a conspicuous role in General Wolfe's capture of Quebec as well. After the French surrendered Canada, Howe returned to England, where he continued on active duty for the remainder of the war. In 1772, Howe received his promotion to Major General. He had long advocated for more light infantry forces, the type of fighting that would prove most effective in America. William Howe and his brother Admiral Richard Howe both expressed sympathy for the colonial cause. Both served in Parliament as pro-colonist Whigs. But now, with war upon them, William Howe would do his military duty. Like most British officers, he believed that the army would crush the colonial rebellion, with the proper leadership, of course. The second new general, Henry Clinton, was actually raised in New York. He came from a noble family in Britain. His grandfather was an earl. His father, Admiral Clinton, had been governor of New York. Clinton received his first commission in New York, later rising to captain, through his father's influence. As a teenager, Clinton moved back to England to pursue his military career starting as a captain and eventually rising to lieutenant colonel in the regular army by the beginning of the Seven Years' War. Clinton served with distinction in Europe during that war, rising to full colonel. After the war, Clinton paid the patronage game and made influential friends. In 1772, he received his promotion to major general and also won a seat in Parliament. He did not seem to take much interest in parliamentary debates, though. He spent most of his time on military tours of Europe before being called to join the expedition to America in 1775. Clinton spent his time in Europe learning a great deal about German military tactics, something he would want to employ during the Revolution. Although Clinton had left America to pursue his military career, he retained many ties to the colonies, and he owned thousands of acres of land in New York which he inherited from his father. So beyond personal advancement in the military, Clinton had a direct economic interest in restoring peace and British control in the colonies. The third major general to arrive that day was John Burgoyne. Now Burgoyne, unlike Howe and Clinton, had a common pedigree. 
his father had been a mere captain in the regular army, though there is some speculation that John was actually the illegitimate son of an English baron. Because he was his son, or for some other reason, the baron took an interest in John's upbringing. He was able to attend a prestigious military academy, where Gage was a classmate. The baron also provided funds so that Burgoyne could purchase his first commission at age 15. The young Burgoyne quickly developed a reputation for heavy spending and high living, well beyond his means. He became known as Gentleman Johnny. His debts, though, caught up with him. In 1741, at age 19, he had to sell his officer's commission to pay off debts and avoid debtor's prison. A few years later, the War of Austrian Succession gave him the opportunity to join a new regiment without having to repurchase a commission. He managed to come up with enough money to buy a captaincy promotion a few years later. After the war, Burgoyne married the daughter of an English lord. Now, the father did not approve of this marriage, and after they eloped, he cut off his daughter financially. Once again, Burgoyne sold his commission so that he and his wife could live in style. Eventually, Burgoyne convinced his father-in-law to provide some support. He purchased a new captaincy in time to participate in the Seven Years' War. Burgoyne did not fight in America, but saw active duty in Europe, rising to lieutenant colonel. He also got elected to Parliament and became a bright light in London society, where he wrote popular songs and plays. He received continued promotion in the army, and like how he was a vocal advocate for light infantry. By 1775, he had become a major general and prepared to work with his fellow officers in crushing the New England Rebellion. Like his two colleagues, Burgoyne had risen through the ranks through a combination of distinction in battle, personal charm, and the ability to play the political game in London. None of the three generals, however, had experience as a strategic theater commander. But then, General Gage remained the theater commander in America at least for now. Now, as long as I'm introducing generals, I guess I should mention one more. Major General Frederick Haldimand had been serving in Boston as Gage's second-in-command, and he was senior to all three of the major generals who had arrived on the Cerberus. Haldimand's advanced rank matched his military experience in America, second only to Gage himself. Haldimand came from a German family although they had lived in Switzerland for a few generations. As a young man, Haldeman joined the Prussian army as an officer, where he fought in the War of Austrian Succession. After the war, he accepted a commission in the Dutch army. In 1755, the British prepared for imminent war with France after a young Captain Washington started a fight in the Ohio Valley a few months prior. Britain recruited Captain Haldeman and a few dozen other German-speaking officers to recruit and train German-speaking Pennsylvania colonists for use in what would become the French and Indian War. Haldeman received a commission as lieutenant colonel in the British Army. In 1758, he was wounded in the British assault on Fort Carillon, the same action that saw the death of General Howe's older brother. The wound did not slow him up any, though. Haldeman continued to serve with distinction, receiving a promotion to full colonel. He was president Montreal for the final French surrender of the war in Canada, 
and served as General Gage's second-in-command. He proved equally capable in peacetime as a military governor in Canada. In 1765, he received promotion to Brigadier General. He then spent eight years in a rather unpleasant command of the Southern Department, stationed in Florida. There, many officers and men succumbed to disease in that hot, swampy land. His work there, though, earned him a promotion to Major General in 1772. The following year, when Gage returned to Europe, he summoned Haldeman to New York to take command of all North American operations, at least temporarily, until Gage returned in 1774. A few months after Gage returned to Boston and began to realize that he was losing control, he called again on Haldeman, who had taken up command in New York. Haldeman and most of the regiments stationed in New York joined Gage in Boston for the months preceding Lexington and Concord. With his extensive military and governmental experience in America, as well as his seniority among the major generals, Haldeman should have been the obvious successor to General Gage. Unfortunately for Haldeman, British officials decided otherwise. His foreign birth raised concerns for his command of all British forces in North America during a war. If something happened to Gage, he would be the senior general. So, with that concern, the same ship that carried the three new major generals to Boston also carried Haldeman's orders to leave America. He would return to London a few weeks later to great accolades for all his good work and receive a cushy inspector generalship in the West Indies. So, sorry for introducing General Haldeman just as he is leaving us, but I thought it worthwhile, though, to give the man some credit for all his hard work. He would eventually receive a promotion to lieutenant general, making him one of the highest-ranking foreign-born active-duty officers ever to serve in the British Army. Now, one more piece of news arrived on the Cerberus for Admiral Graves. He had received a promotion from Vice Admiral of the Blue to Vice Admiral of the White. He also learned of his additional orders pursuant to Parliament's passage of the Restraining Act that I discussed a few episodes back. His Navy, already patrolling more than a thousand miles of North American coastline, also would now be responsible for preventing any colonial merchant traffic from carrying on any trade with any countries outside the British Empire. The Navy would also prevent any colonists from fishing off the waters of Newfoundland. He would have to do that while also defending and supplying the growing army in Boston. Now, I guess I should have mentioned this earlier, but Admiral Samuel Graves had replaced Admiral Montague as naval commander in North America in 1774. I've been given the Navy rather little attention thus far, and since I'm using this episode to introduce all the generals, I might as well give a little background on Admiral Graves as well. Graves was in his 60s when he received orders to take command of operations in North America. He came from a family with a long naval tradition. His grandfather had served as a captain in the Royal Navy, and Samuel joined the Navy in 1732 at the age of 19. During the War of Austrian Succession, he served under his uncle, Captain and future Admiral Thomas Graves, where he served with distinction in combat. He became a captain of his own ship in 1744. After a series of successful commands during the Seven Years' War, 
he made rear admiral in 1762. By 1770, he moved up to vice admiral. Following the Boston Tea Party, he received his orders to go to Boston and close the harbor in enforcement of the Boston Port Act. Now, it's not unusual for there to be friction between the Army and Navy, and General Gage and Admiral Graves were no exception to this. The two men did not get along well at all. There were fights over the use of Royal Marines in land combat, or how to deploy ships best to protect Boston. But they also fought over little things. The Navy controlled the harbor. As the siege cut off food supplies, Admiral Graves charged a small fee for any soldiers who wanted to take fishing boats into the harbor to try to feed themselves. This frustrated the soldiers to no end. Also, the Navy brought in food from other ports to feed the soldiers. However, it skimmed off the best food for itself and gave the rest to the Army. Graves played a crucial role in supplying and guarding the Army in Boston, but he and Gage would remain at odds. The two men never developed a good working relationship. So, with all that background, the Cerberus, carrying Generals Howe, Clinton, and Burgoyne, arrived in Boston on May 25, 1775, about five weeks after Lexington. Their regiments would continue to arrive over the next few weeks. Before even arriving in Boston, the generals aboard the Cerberus received word from a passing ship that the Boston garrison was besieged by 10,000 colonists. Now, they were shocked by this, thinking regulars should be able to disperse a civilian militia many times their number. General Gage, as I said, remained commander-in-chief. London had sent the three generals to assist Gage, not replace him. But, almost immediately, all three began writing back to friends and colleagues in London that Gage was weak and incompetent. He had not shown any aggressive fighting spirit and let the colonists run amok. They arrived with the same attitude that Gage had shown a year earlier when he came to Boston as the new governor-general. Just as Gage blamed Governor Hutchinson for his failure to maintain a firm hand over the civilians, the new generals hurled the same accusations at Gage. Conventional wisdom of the time said a professional army could always impose its will on a civilian population of much larger numbers. Civilians and militia might talk tough, but they would not stand against a professional, well-trained army of regulars and take casualties with the same fortitude. Therefore, a leader who marches around at will and unleashes the fury of the army on civilians will only remind them of what they lose when they reject the protection of the British Empire. Gage had tried to push back against civil resistance to his policies as governor, but he did not really use his army to enforce his will until Lexington and Concord. And even then, he sent out a party that was too small and without sufficient ammunition for battle. The three new generals assured themselves and each other that they could do better. Now, remaining in Boston was not an option. Food and supplies were difficult to import, and attempts to secure them were proving problematic. I already discussed some of the skirmishes over resources in last week's episode, but keeping thousands of soldiers in Boston only risked death from hunger and disease. Sitting around would probably be more deadly to British soldiers than any attack. Now, Gage had not even declared martial law in the colony. 
With some convincing, he finally would declare martial law on June 12th. His declaration promised pardons for anyone who laid down their arms and returned home, with the exceptions of Samuel Adams and John Hancock, who would be tried for treason. Although released under Gage's name, the pompous language of this declaration sounds much more like it was the work of General Burgoyne. Now, no patriots seem to have acted on this offer of pardon, and nothing really changed. The declaration, however, provided the legal justification for levying war on the rebellious population. The three ambitious generals pushed to take the newly enlarged army on the offensive. The beginning of summer was the time when one started a military campaign. The obvious first steps were to reclaim the heights outside of Boston. To the south of the city, near Roxbury, rose Dorchester Heights. To the north of the city, on Charlestown Peninsula, sat Bunker and Breed's Hills. If the provincials occupied either of these heights with artillery, both Boston and the fleet in the harbor would be at risk. So far, British threats had intimidated the provincials from occupying either one. But that could not last forever. Taking control of these high ground areas would be the first step towards tackling the militia mobs surrounding Boston. We'll see how that plays out in the coming weeks. Now, next week, the British Navy discovers that mastery of the seas is more difficult than they thought as they fight the battles of Buzzards Bay and Machias. This episode is brought to you by eBay Motors. eBay Motors is here for the ride. Remember when you first saw the potential, and then through some elbow grease, fresh installs, and a whole lot of love, you transformed 100,000 miles and a body full of rust into a drive that's all your own. With over 122 million parts for your number one ride or die, you can make sure that your ride stays running smoothly. Brake kits, LED headlights, exhaust kits, turbochargers, bumpers, whatever your baby needs ebay motors has it and with ebay guaranteed fit it's guaranteed to fit your ride the first time every time or your money back plus at these prices you're burning rubber not cash keep your ride or die alive at ebaymotors.com eligible items only exclusions apply hello back again for another american revolution podcast book recommendation Before I get to this week's book, I want to talk about advertising. It's recently been brought to my attention that some third parties have been tacking on ads to my podcast without my knowledge and without paying me. If you download through iTunes or directly from my hosting company, Podbean, you should not be getting ads. If you're going elsewhere and getting them, I certainly haven't been seeing any money from the ads that have been tacked on. If you want some links that will provide episodes without anything added, please visit my website, www.amrevpodcast.com. Now, having said all that, after more than a year of producing this podcast and making it available completely ad-free, I have decided that I really need to start adding ads of my own to cover the costs of this podcast. I have opened up my podcast to advertisers and are looking for sponsors. Now, I record these episodes a few weeks before publication, so by the time you hear this, with any luck, 
there may be some ads already inserted into the podcast episodes. I'm still waiting to see if I can get any sponsors. And even if I do, I really want to try to minimize the intrusiveness of the ads, as I really don't want them to affect the experience of the podcast itself. I hope you understand the need for these and will continue to listen anyway. Thanks. Okay, well since today's episode was all about British military leaders who came to suppress the revolution, I thought it appropriate to recommend a book which gives more details on these men. So this week's recommendation is The Men Who Lost America by Andrew Jackson O'Shaughnessy. This book describes some of the key British leaders starting with King George III and Prime Minister Lord North. It also covers Admiral Howe and Generals Howe, Clinton, Burgoyne, and Cornwallis, as well as a few other key government officials. Now, these are not just mini-biographies of each man. Rather, the author tries to weave the role of each man into the story of how Britain attempted to resolve or crush the colonial disputes and ultimately failed. It covers the war from beginning to end from the perspective of the political and military leadership. The book was first published in 2013 and is about 360 pages of text, with another 100 or so pages of notes and indices. The author, O'Shaughnessy, is a history professor at the University of Virginia and is also a researcher at a foundation at Monticello, Thomas Jefferson's one-time home. O'Shaughnessy has also authored another book, An Empire Divided, which discusses the British colonies in the Caribbean at the time period of the Revolution. That one's also an interesting read. His book, The Men Who Lost America, though, tries to make the same point that I've tried to make in my podcast, that the top military and political leadership of Britain at the time, from King George on down to the low-level officers, largely believed that the military had the power to force political concessions on the colonies. Rebellions were nothing new to Britain. They happened all the time in Scotland and Ireland. What leaders did not anticipate in America was the dispersion of power, not held by just a few nobles who could be bought off, the vast distance across the Atlantic that made the deployment of troops slow and expensive, and the vast amount of territory to be occupied. Leaders in London expected that most of the population in America would prove loyal and that the local Tory forces could handle most of this for the Crown. That proved not to be the case, in part due to the way the leadership prosecuted the war. And this book helps us to understand that leadership and that strategy a little better. As always, if you click on the book recommendation from my website, www.amrevpodcast.com, and buy the book on Amazon through that link, you will help support this podcast. Well, that's it for this week. I hope you will join me next week for another American Revolution podcast. What does Sputnik have to do with student loans? How did a set of trembling hands end the Soviet Union? How did inflation kill moon bases? And how did a former president decide to run for a second non-consecutive term? These are among the topics we deal with on the My History Can Beat Up Your Politics podcast. We tell stories of history that relate to today's news events. Give a listen. My History Can Beat Up Your Politics, wherever you get podcasts.